today is the Lord's Day, the Sabbath day, one of the 52 holy days in the year, a day on which we are commanded to rest from our labors, to gather with God's people, to receive the means of grace that are prepared for us, and to worship our God in spirit and in truth. In this sense, we commemorate celebrate and experience the reality of the risen Christ every Sunday. Yet this particular Sunday is one that is considered by many other Christian traditions to be a particularly holy day, Easter, a day on which the truth of the resurrection of Christ is especially focused on and celebrated. While this is not particularly the case with the Presbyterian tradition, Yet given the broader cultural focus on the resurrection today and the fact that it is always a good and a fitting thing to study it and to be reminded of it, we will look at Luke chapter 24, verses 13 through 35, where on the same day as his resurrection, Christ appeared on the road to Emmaus. There, Jesus meets two of his followers who, fundamentally misunderstanding the purpose of the Messiah, are utterly dejected. We will see how Christ rebukes their false understanding, interprets the true meaning of the types and shadows and prophecies of the Old Testament, and finally reveals himself personally, smashing their doubts and causing them to run back with joy to the people of God, who they had just abandoned. The sermon today will be divided into three points. First, the doubting disciples. Secondly, Jesus' true teaching. And thirdly, the resurrected Christ revealed. Let's look at the word of God together in Luke chapter 24 verses 13 through 35. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, What is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people. And how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning. And when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had seen even a vision of angels who said that he was alive. 
Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going farther, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. And he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word that you have written down for us this incredible story of Christ's resurrection and his appearance to uh, his disciples afterwards. Lord, we pray that as we study it together today that you would be with us, that you would uh, help us to understand it, and that through the study of it that uh, our hearts and our eyes would be lifted up to you and you would be glorified. We pray all these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. The beginning of our passage today is really and truly linked to verses 1 through 12 of this chapter, chapter 24 where Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James, find the tomb of Jesus where he had been buried empty and are confronted by an angel who tells them that Jesus is risen. They had immediately gone and told the gathered disciples, but they were met with disbelief by all but Peter and John, who ran to the tomb to verify the story for themselves. The two followers of Christ on the road to the village of Emmaus that we find in verses 13 through 35 were there when that story was told by the two women. Yet rather than accepting it and believing with joy, going to the tomb as Peter and John had, or even remaining in Jerusalem as the rest of the disciples did, they departed the city and began their journey home. They had lost hope. They were defeated and dejected, so much so that it was visible to any who passed them by. They were also evidently engaged in passionate conversation over the events that they had seen, and most likely over what it meant for their lives and what their next steps should be. It is in this context that Jesus makes his first 
resurrected appearance in the Gospel of Luke. Although we know from the Gospels of Matthew and John that he had already appeared to Mary Magdalene, probably directly beforehand. He comes alongside the dejected disciples as if he were simply just another traveler on the road. While some commentators think that Jesus went unrecognized because the disciples just didn't expect to see him, or that somehow his glorified body made him unrecognizable, the text here is pretty clear. Their eyes were kept from recognizing him. Through miraculous divine intervention, these disciples, Cleopas and his companion, did not recognize Christ, and that allowed him to ask a series of important and leading questions. What is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them named Cleopas answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? One can easily imagine the face of Cleopas and his friend. It is as if Jesus' question stopped them in their tracks. They must have been completely taken aback that there is this traveler who was ignorant of the events which had captured the attention of the whole of Jerusalem, of chief priests, of kings, and of Roman governors. Yet Jesus' questions accomplished their goal as Cleopas began to give his own explanation of the events that occurred, one that gives us a glimpse into his fundamental misunderstanding of the promise of the Messiah. Cleopas says, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. Do you hear the hopelessness in this description? Jesus Christ, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word, we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Him they did not see. They, like so many others, had allowed their hope for a Messiah who would be a warrior king, who would rid them of the yoke of Roman oppression to blind them to the reality of what Jesus had really come to accomplish. For them, Jesus' death seemed to be the death of their hope and dreams as well. And it seems that they were now going to seek the redemption of Israel somewhere else. This is a perfect illustration 
of what Paul speaks about in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 14 through 19. And if Christ had not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. There are many theologians, pastors, even full denominations who reject the reality of the resurrection of Christ, insisting that it is too miraculous to believe, insisting that it does not strike at the vitals of the Christian faith or of the teachings of Jesus. Yet we can see in this passage in Luke the reaction of disciples who have seen that he has died but do not believe that he is resurrected. And in what Paul says here in 1 Corinthians, that that is absolutely not the case. If Christ is not raised, then there is no hope. There is only the here and now. And we might as well pack up shop, tear down the live stream, and just go home and do something else, something better with our Sundays. But praise be to God that the Gospel of Luke does not end after verse 24 of chapter 24. That brings us to our second point, Jesus' true teaching. At this point, we might expect Jesus to throw off his disguise, in a sense, revealing himself as having come back from the dead with Cleopas and his companion amazed and embracing him. That's probably how it would end if it was a Hollywood movie. Yet Jesus does almost the opposite. He rebukes them in an objectively harsh way. Oh, foolish ones, and slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. How many times had Jesus explained to his disciples that he would be arrested, put to death, and resurrected on the third day? Yet in his explanation, Cleopas had made no mention of this. Ironically, he even mentions the third day in his explanation, but in a way that's just totally divorced from any expectation of resurrection. Slow to believe is saying it lightly. And this fault applied to most of Christ's disciples. Because of this, John Calvin points out in his commentary that this rebuke was not confined to these two persons, Cleopas and his friend, but it was a reproof of a common fault was intended to be conveyed by their lips to the rest of their companions. Here Jesus is condemning all of his disciples for their failure to take seriously these things. But Christ did not focus on his own 
ignored predictions of his death and resurrection. Instead, he points Cleopas and his companion to all that the prophets have spoken. He asks rhetorically, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? Then Jesus gave what was assuredly a brilliant overview of the Old Testament, one which I dearly wish was written down, where he went from beginning to end, showing how it held forth the promise of a Messiah who would suffer and die for the sins of his people and still emerge as a victorious king. Well, Luke does not write down what Jesus said for us, I think we can look for ourselves at a few passages that, while only the tip of the iceberg, give a good sense of what Christ probably referenced. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, after the fall of Adam and Eve, God gives the first hint of the gospel within his curse of Satan. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. In 2 Samuel, we see the promise of the Messiah as an eternal king in a prophecy given from Nathan to David, mixed in with reference to Solomon. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. Passages like this in Second Samuel were what gave Jews like Cleopas hope that the Messiah would be someone who would establish an earthly kingdom and defeat the Roman oppressors. Get in Isaiah chapter 53, verses 3 through 5, we see the famous prophecy of the suffering of the Messiah. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. How is this to be reconciled with the idea of a victorious and eternal king? How can the Messiah reign as king when he is a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, despised, not esteemed, stricken, smitten, afflicted, pierced, crushed, chastised, and wounded? The answer is found a few verses later in verses 10 through 12. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him, He has put him to grief. 
When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Here Isaiah makes it explicit that the Messiah will reign forever because of his suffering and death. It is because of his suffering and death that he will have a people to rule over, redeemed from their iniquity, a people for himself. And for the Messiah, the Christ, to rule over the people who he has redeemed, then it is absolutely necessary that he should be alive, risen from the death to which he had fallen. Later on in this chapter, Cleopas and his companions say to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? Christ's exposition of the word of God had struck them at the very heart and had stirred up their faith. Does your heart burn within you when you read or hear the scriptures preached where Christ is shown to you as the suffering Savior and the risen King? Do you stand in awe at the fact the Son of God died a horrible death on the cross for your sins? Are you comforted and emboldened in prayer when you meditate on the risen Christ at the right hand of the Father, mediating and interceding for you? Is your heart filled with joy and expectation at the hope of Christ's bodily return when his people will be gathered together and when we will be united with our own resurrected and glorified bodies? Don't let the word of God pass through one ear and out the other. For within it, we find our faith grown, our resolve strengthened, and our hope renewed. That brings us to our third and final point, the resurrected Christ revealed. With their hearts burning within them, Cleopas and his friend invite Jesus to stay with them saying that it was toward evening and the day is now far spent. Given that Emmaus was only around seven miles or 11 kilometers from Jerusalem and that it seems that they had begun their journey in the morning, it was probably actually only early afternoon, but their enthusiasm to remain with this traveler who could so expertly expound the scriptures, cause them to use any argument that they can come up with. Jesus agrees to come in with them, for he had a final lesson to give. 
in a sign of their great respect for him, Cleopas and his companion give Jesus the honor of blessing the meal. What happened next was extraordinary. He took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. The similarities to the feeding of the 5,000 and the institution of the Lord's Supper are unmistakable. And in my opinion, they're definitely not a coincidence. In chapter 9, verse 16 of Luke, it is said that taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing over them. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the crowd. In chapter 22, verse 19, during the Last Supper, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them. Commentators disagree over the meaning here of Jesus' actions, with some noting that there are no words of institution like those in the Last Supper, and using that to say that there is no sense of the Lord's Supper being alluded to here. While it is certainly true that Jesus is not literally celebrating the Lord's Supper with Cleopas and his friend, for believers will not eat again with Jesus face to face until the wedding feast of the Lamb that is prophesied in Revelation, it is still no coincidence that the divine veil of source that was over the eyes of Cleopas and his companion was raised the moment that Christ broke the bread and gave it to them. In that moment, they saw that it was Jesus who was the Christ. It was Jesus whose body had been broken for them in the same way that he broke the bread for them, and that through their union with Christ, they are fed spiritually with his body, their faith grown and strengthened by it. It is in this sense that the immediate disappearance of Christ makes sense. In sitting at the right hand of the Father, he acts as our mediator. He rules his church, and he unites us to him through his spirit in the preaching of the word, in prayer, and in a special manner in the partaking of the Lord's Supper. No longer does he walk the earth speaking with and communing with one person or one small group at a time. But instead, from heaven, through the Holy Spirit, all Christians throughout history and throughout the world are brought near to and united with Christ. As Jesus says in John chapter 16, verses 7 through 11, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. One can only imagine what the faces of Cleopas and his friend must have looked like at that moment. With recognizing Jesus and in the same instant his disappearance. It must have been a combination of shock of joy, of excitement, of wonder. And it is a little surprise that they did not say to each other, well, that was something. Let's uh, go to bed and have a good sleep and then go back and tell the others tomorrow. No. 
they went back to Jerusalem that very hour. That very hour. It was not something that could wait. It was too momentous, too amazing, too important to dither around with. They retraced their steps in a completely different set of mind than when they had been heading the other direction. Jesus was alive. He had redeemed Israel, the people of God. Would we be surprised if they, like Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, 54 through 55, were to quote Isaiah and Hosea singing, Death is swallowed up in victory. O oh, death, where is your victory? O oh, death, where is your sting? Upon their return to Jerusalem, they found the apostles and other disciples already rejoicing as Jesus had also appeared to Peter. The story of Cleopas and his friend must have only added to the joy of that assembly and to their certainty that their Lord Jesus was not just a martyr at the hands of jealous religious leaders and an apathetic Roman governor. He had conquered death. He was the risen king. He was the Messiah that they had all been waiting for. I urge you, brothers and sisters, don't ever take this incredible, beautiful truth for granted. Set it before your eyes every day through the reading of the word. Rejoice as Cleopas and his friends did every Sunday together with your brothers and sisters in Christ. Remember when we partake of the Lord's Supper that it is not just a bare remembrance of what a man in first century Judea did, but that through it we commune with Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who is alive and coming again. Don't hesitate to, like the two disciples of Emmaus, to share the wonderful news of the gospel with all those who will give you a hearing so that they too might experience the power of Christ in their lives. And though in our pilgrimage on this earth, there will be pain and trials and suffering, grief and persecution, let us look forward with joyful hope and expectation to the scene that is promised in Revelation 21, verses 3 and 4, which is only possible because of the death and resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more. For the former things have passed away. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you and praise you for 
the incredible gift that is your son, his sacrifice for us, for the beautiful truth that is the resurrection that that Jesus is alive, that we are united to him, and that through him we may look forward to this final glorious scene in heaven where we are gathered around your throne worshiping you freed from the burden of our sin. Let us never take it for granted, Father. Remind us of this every day and help us to live our lives in such a way that testifies to its truth and that glorifies you to the watching world. We pray all these things in the name of your glorious Son and our blessed Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.